welcome to episode nine of the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, opening up with, um, as last week, with more sounds of the Syrian revolution. Somebody posted this um, free Syria new song to YouTube, a guy by the name of Obeid2000, and it was posted back in... 2012, back in those um, early years of the Syrian revolution, when things were still very much um, animated by the spirit of the of the Arab Spring and animated by a real um, um, sense of hope that the dictator could be overthrown and some kind of democratic transition could happen. Now, of course, it's um, 2018, and. Syria has turned into a world-scale disaster, and I'm particularly worried about what's going to happen this week. We've, obviously, there have been all these fears that the crisis in Syria could serve as a spark for a wider international conflagration, which could potentially escalate to the unthinkable. And uh, we're definitely going to be looking at... Um, big potential for escalation this week because we have a, um, a convergence of a couple of factors. One is, of course, we all know that Trump just walked away from the nuclear deal with Iran. And immediately after he did so, Netanyahu apparently took this as a green light to start bombing Iranian targets in Syria. And then for the first time, Iran actually retaliated, launching airstrikes, well, popularly portrayed in the media as launching airstrikes on Israel. Technically, that's not correct. Launching airstrikes on the Golan Heights, which is um, Syrian territory, which has been occupied and illegally annexed by Israel. Nonetheless, uh, this is frightening. And what's um, what makes it more frightening is... Uh, the whole situation in Gaza, where this um, March for Return movement has already resulted in something like uh, 30 or 40 dead along the uh, along the borders of um, of Gaza, with Israeli troops firing on unarmed protesters, and uh, it's all going to be building to a climax on May 15th, which uh, the Palestinians call Nakba Day or Disaster Day, the Israelis call it their Independence Day. And uh, this is what the, uh, the movement um, in Gaza has been building towards. They're going to have a big mobilization on that day, which is just going to be two days from now as I am speaking, May 15th. Um, so I am certainly hoping against hope that it is not going to explode into more horrific bloodshed. But we can't kid ourselves about the just based on recent past events for, um, you know, the potential for this. And if that happens, it could sort of serve as the um, propaganda lubricant for a um, an Iranian retaliation against Israel, which the uh, you know Tehran has been threatening since Israel began bombing Iranian targets in Syria. So um, there's the potential for things to really, really get out of hand just in the coming week. Uh, I will note that uh, there's one rather ironic glimmer of hope here, which is, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin, who I consider to be a massive war criminal, 
who is essentially doing to Syria what Nixon did to Vietnam with massive bombardment of civilian populations to prop up an unpopular regime. Uh, In this particular situation, he could sort of uh, be serving to uh, put the brakes on the escalation because uh, obviously he's allied with Iran. They're on the same side in Syria. And um, he's also very um, buddy-buddy with Netanyahu, who was just invited to Moscow just this past week for the um, celebrations about the uh, over the anniversary of the Soviet victory in the Second World War. So uh, Putin and Netanyahu are all buddy-buddy, and uh, Putin and Tehran are also closely allied. So I don't think that he really wants his two friends going to war with each other, and he might uh, put some pressure on both sides. Obviously, I think he has more influence with Tehran than he does with with Netanyahu, but he could be putting some more some, some influence on both sides to um, restrain themselves. So um, still, there's a serious. Um, by the time you're listening to this, it's probably just going to be 24 hours by the time we get this up on the web. 24 hours until we're going to be looking at a um, uh, a day which has got very grim forebodings indeed. Um, and, you know, there's a, a further, you know, irony to all of this is that, um, and this is really what I'm going to be ranting about tonight, is that um, once again, you know, I mean, I just, uh, I know I've gone on about it for um, three episodes in a row now. But um, it really, really, um, it really, really pisses me off. So I'm going to keep ranting about it tonight, which is that uh, unfortunately, you know, the anti-war forces and the left in the West are flatly on the wrong side in Syria. They are on the side of the aggressors. They are on the side of the war criminals. They are on the side, in short, of Putin and the genocidal dictator Bashar Assad, who has been exterminating the civilian population, the disloyal elements of the civilian population in the, um, in the areas of he contr- of, that, that he controls. Exterminating is not my word. It's the word of the uh, United Nations Human Rights Council and um, has been uh, repeatedly now, you know, for up- upwards of 30 times over the course of the war, been using poisonous gas to terrorize the population into submission. You know, I hedged for a long time about calling this genocide because that's a word that I take with the utmost seriousness. It's not a word that I just, you know, throw around like a manhole cover or use as a baseball bat to beat up on people I don't like. Things can be really, really, really bad and really demand our, um, our protest and opposition and still be short of genocide. But I really think that um, Assad has long been approaching what Robert J. Lifton calls the genocidal threshold, and at this point has crossed it. The war has taken on a genocidal aspect. Um, and what makes it all particularly ironic is that, you know, you hear over and over again from uh, the paradoxical, quote-unquote, anti-war cheerleaders of Bashar Assad, and that is precisely what they are, that, uh, you know, um, he stands up to, um, to Israel on behalf of the Palestinians and that the whole insurgency against him has been fomented by Mossad and Israeli intelligence. And, you know, that is such nonsense. For starters, for all of the bombs that he has expended 
to terrorize his own populace into submission, he hasn't used a single bomb to take back the occupied Golan Heights from Israel. It's only just come to that in the past week, and it wasn't even Assad, it was Iran for its own purposes of retaliation against Israel, not on behalf of the, um, of the occupied Arab populace of, of the Golan Heights. And more ironic still is that um, just as Palestinians are under attack by Netanyahu in Gaza, Palestinians are massively under attack by Bashar Assad in Yarmouk, the refugee camp outside Damascus, which has been for weeks now coming under massive bombardment by the Assad regime and its Russian allies because there are believed to be jihadist factions there. And probably there are, but it doesn't justify, just as there are you know, some ugly factions in Gaza as well, but it doesn't justify massive bombardment of the civilian populace. And the, what's particularly tragic is that the residents of Yarmouk, they're already refugees and the offspring of refugees, and uh, all classified as refugees by the United Nations. And, you know, they're people who have already been displaced from their homes in Palestine. And now they are being displaced a second time as they are being uh, forced to flee into homelessness as, uh, as Yarmouk is coming under massive bombardment. And once again, I mean, if you're opposing what Netanyahu is doing in Gaza, I don't see how you can fail to oppose what Bashar Assad is doing in Yarmouk. I mean, the only argument for maintaining silence on what um, Assad is doing in Yarmouk is that it's not being carried out with our tax dollars. It's not being done, you know, in our name as Americans and particularly as American Jews. And there's some legitimacy to that argument. I agree that our first responsibility is to oppose the crimes that are being committed with our own tax dollars directly by the United States government or by its client states, such as Israel. But well, the, the, the first point is, you know, once again, that does not mean that you have to maintain an hermetic silence over war crimes which are committed by um, entities which are not the United States or its direct client states. And that, you know, we have certain responsibilities as human beings, not merely as U.S. citizens, but as, as inhabitants of planet Earth. And the second point, and the much more important point, is actually, is even if you have less of a responsibility to oppose war crimes which are committed by forces which are not directly funded by our tax dollars as American citizens, you also have a responsibility not to consciously abet them. And abetting them is exactly what at least wide swaths of the anti-war, so-called anti-war forces in the West and the rather poorly named progressive or left forces in the left are doing. And again, there's all of this denial about this, all of this, you know, this knee-jerk response of, oh, no, we don't support Assad. We merely oppose U.S. intervention in Syria. And once again, I'm going to point out how this is nonsense. After the, um, 
After the uh, April poisonous gas attack at Duma, the um, protests, some of the protests which were organized by one of the worst anti-war groups out there, so-called anti-war groups, which is actually a pro-war group, ANSWER, the ironically named Act Now to Stop War and End Racism, which I believe should actually stand for Act Now to Support War and Encourage Racism. Uh, they uh, held rallies, of course, you know, after uh, Trump launched airstrikes on Syrian military bases in response to the Duma gas attack. They uh, held protests against this across the country and at the ones, at least at the ones in, um, in Los Angeles, because I saw the pictures online, they were um, holding placards with the portrait of Bashar Assad and signs that read, we love Assad. And Assad is protecting civilians. He is not bombing his own people. Quote, unquote. I am reading directly from the placards as shown in the photos, which are posted on my website. Let's go to Counter Vortex Node 15911, and you will see them right there. If you don't believe me, you can see for yourself. So, I mean, this is simply a reversal of reality. Assad is protecting civilians days after... He carried out a poisonous gas attack. He is not bombing his own people when he's been doing exactly that for five years now. Uh, So, I mean, I'm sorry. This constitutes open support for the genocidal dictator. And where else have we seen such open support for the genocidal dictator? Well, surprise, surprise, at the neo-Nazi rally in Charlottesville, North Carolina in August of last year, exactly the same kind of openly pro-Assad propaganda. This is also documented on my website, countervortex.org, under a post entitled, Assad's Radical Right Admirers in Charlottesville. There is a whole slew of such quotes from uh, the likes of David Duke and so on, in open support of Assad. And there were a couple of real uh, beauties from a a guy by the name of Baked Alaska, who seems to be something of a um, prominent figure, a notable in the so-called alt-right in Southern California. There's actually um, some video clips from him which were tweeted where um, he says, echoing exactly what, uh, you know, practically word for word, what what you saw at the answer rally in... um, in, in Los Angeles last month, Assad did nothing wrong, quote unquote. But then, you know, I have to give creds to Baked Alaska and these alt-right freaks for at least being more honest than their anti-war, quote unquote, counterparts. Because then Baked Alaska went on to say, barrel bombs, hell yeah! And Assad's the man, brother. Two chemical bombs would have ended this whole ISIS problem quote, unquote. So at least they get creds for being more honest in their pro-war position and pro-genocide position than the so-called anti-war forces. And I also um, noted video, also on my website, Counter Vortex, where um, it appears that Baked Alaska actually joined that um, answer rally in Los Angeles. And he actually um, posted uh, video of himself, you know, sort of like a selfie video of himself marching at the uh, at the answer rally 
after in April of less of this year after the after the Duma chemical attacks. Now, um, I am told the video does not show this, but I am told that um, after his identity was revealed and you know people got wise to the fact that he was an alt writer, he was chased out of the rally. But um, that's just what I'm told. The video does not actually show that. There's nothing in the video to indicate that at all. But I'm just putting it out there into the record that I have been told that. I have not been able to, uh, to nail it down. But there is definitely a, um, a, a convergence which is going on between, you know, the so-called anti-war left and the, you know, alt-right or fascist right, to be less euphemistic about it, um, around a, uh, a position of support for Bashar Assad, uh, most obviously. And it's part of a larger phenomenon that, that has been termed red-brown politics. This is the phrase which is actually used by its advocates in Europe, the notion of a, um, an alliance between uh, uh, the left and fascism against the, uh, against the West and the liberal order, so to speak. And this is an extremely dangerous notion. And you do not have to be any supporter of the West and the liberal order to recognize that this is an extremely dangerous notion and that it is imperative that we do not take this toxic bait of an alliance with fascism. And unfortunately, many people are taking it. Just continuing to the um, example of... um, of Syria, because that's where this um, incipient red-brown alliance um, is most advanced. I will note that after the um, the first big chemical attack in Syria back in uh, 2013, the Gouda attack, after which um, Obama threatened airstrikes but failed to, to follow through on them, two figures which were extremely prominent on the so-called left in the United States made junkets to Syria to express their solidarity with the regime. Uh, One of them was um, Cynthia McKinney, the former congressperson and uh, former presidential candidate of the Green Party. And I will point out that the later presidential candidate of the Green Party, Jill Stein, has, uh, you know, also echoed a very similar line and her running mate, Ajamu Baraka, was an open supporter of Bashar Assad. And after, his, um, after Assad's completely controlled pseudo-election, in which he you know, confirmed his you know, one-party dictatorial rule in, um, in 2014, Ajamu Baraka issued some statements congratulating him and uh, <clears throat> showing how uh, you know, this, this was a, um, a statement by um, the Syrian people um, you know, against, uh, you know, the imperialist West and regime change. Uh, Ramsey Clark was another one who joined uh, that junket to Syria in the immediate aftermath of the 2013 Gouda attack. Ramsey Clark, who represents the International Action Center, one of the many um, entities on the uh, so-called anti-war left in this country, which ultimately emerge from a, um, a Stalinist sect called the Workers' World Party, which has been uh, particularly aggressive in promoting what I call um, red-brown politics. So there you have two you know, figures from the supposed left 
who uh, made junkets to, to Syria to you know show open support for the Assad regime in um, in 2013 after the um, after the Gouda attack. Cynthia McKinney and Ramsey Clark. Uh, the next person of note to do so the following year in 2014, making a um, um, a junket to Syria for a um, a confab which was hosted by the uh, by the regime was Nick Griffin of the British National Party, the, you know, ultra-xenophobic, fascistic creep in, um, <clears throat> in the United Kingdom who has been, you know, harnessing the same kind of uh, ugly politics that we call alt-right on, um, on our side of the proverbial pond. And then just last year, 2017, Tulsi Gabbard, the um, Hawaii congressperson who has become quite a... Uh, figure of admiration on the so-called anti-war left and who also um, was um, very much a, um, a prominent figure in uh, Bernie Sanders' camp- presidential campaign in 2016. She made her own trip to, um, to Syria just last year, 2017, and actually met with the dictator Bashar Assad. And uh, also I will note that... Um, after, immediately after Trump's election, the year before that, 2016, she also sat down with Trump, apparently. It was widely reported that she had a meeting with Trump immediately after his um, his election, as did, by the way, Marine Le Pen, the uh, you know, ultra-right, xenophobic uh, you know, politician in, um, in France. So, um, I mean, it's all being spelled out pretty clearly here. All you have to do is... Um, Sort of look at the uh, at the at least de facto alliances which are coming together here, and um, it's pretty clear that uh, you know a an, an incipient red brown alliance is um, converging on the global stage. One of the uh, the key figures calling for this in quite explicit terms, calling for a red brown alliance, is um, Alexander Dugan who is the sort of the uh, political guru of, um, of, of Vladimir Putin. He's been called Putin's Rasputin. And he uh, has been a real, a key force in trying to, you know, bring together figures from the, you know, the xenophobic right in Britain and, and, in, and in Europe and in the United States with figures from the so-called anti-war left. And he, uh, you know, recently called for, you know, both sides to, quote, put aside anti-communist as well as anti-fascist prejudices, quote-unquote, which he said are, quote, instruments in the hands of liberals and globalists with which to keep their enemies divided. And I will note a, uh, you know, a final really, really, really perverse irony here is that back in um, December of 2014, the Duganists in Russia, hosted a, um, an international conference in Moscow on, quote, the right of peoples to self-determination and building a multipolar world, quote-unquote, bringing together various of, you know, these Euro-fascist formations and supported by Putin. And the participants included a delegation of American leftists, quote-unquote, from, once again, the International Action Center, which is the, the group that Ramsey Clark is associated with, former Attorney General Ramsey Clark, and also uh, 
the group which was at the at the core of answer upon its um, upon its inception. There were later factional splits. That was one. The other uh, group, which uh, had um, delegations attending this Duganist confab in Moscow, was the United National Anti-War Coalition, or UNAC. Now, both of these entities are spawn of the Workers' World Party. UNAC is a uh, recent effort to reunite the organizations in the orbit of um, of Workers' World with um, with Answer, which has since split around a... Uh, a rival faction with the same sinister politics with the extremely ironic name of the party for socialism and liberation, which actually supports fascism and dictatorship. So UNAC and the international action center, both entities, which ultimately emerged from workers world um, had um, delegations at this Duganist confab in Moscow in December, 2014 and also in attendance at that same conference was a delegation of white nationalists from the neo-Confederate organization called the League of the South. So we need to be aware of this, but the same entities which, uh, you know, here in New York City and in the United States, these you know, gr- groups like, like ANSWER and the International Action Center and UNAC, which are, you know, making a big to-do of, you know, standing up to the alt-right and standing up to white nationalists, attended a conference in Moscow where they actually sat down with neo-Confederates. Very much in the same style that Jill Stein, in her famous um, junket to Moscow, and I believe it was uh, 2016, sat down with not only with Vladimir Putin, but also with Michael Flynn, later to become the national security advisor and one of the most reactionary figures in the Trump administration. So we need to open our eyes here but it isn't only, you know, these um, elements which are on the, um, the seeming fringe. The same tendency can now be seen entering mainstream discourse. Tucker Carlson, the Fox News anchor and commentator, after the uh, Duma chemical attack, was spewing identical denialist garbage about the regime being behind the chemical attack that we also heard from that icon of the left, Robert Fisk, whose cynical and disingenuous claims about the, about anybody other than Assad being behind the Duma attack. We deconstructed on our last show. So you can go back and listen to our last show. If you want to hear that for spewing this denialist nonsense about Duma, Tucker Carlson, a figure of the right was praised by Jimmy Dore, a popular video commentator, YouTube commentator of the supposed left. Also featured as guests on Tucker Carlson in recent months have been uh, figures of the supposed left, such as Glenn Greenwald, 
And um, Stephen Cohen, a particularly um, slippery figure, who is um, one of the leading lights of The Nation magazine, which is a, supposedly a publication of the left, but he has become a, um, a foremost supporter in, um, in, you know, on the media in the United States open supporter of Vladimir Putin and, by extension, Bashar Assad. And The Nation magazine has actually become a platform for lying propaganda on behalf of Putin and Assad. And again, I don't take these charges lightly. The most egregious case which I'm talking about was... um, Back in August of uh, 2016, an interview with Stephen Cohen was um, featured on the Nation website with the introductory text reading. This was during the, uh, by the way, this was in the midst of the siege of Aleppo when uh, the city of Aleppo was being massively bombed by Putin and Assad. The introductory text read, quote, Putin needs a decision by Obama now as the crucial battle for Aleppo intensifies. Under his own pressure at home, Putin seems to resolve to end the Islamic State's occupation of Syria, Aleppo being a strategic site without or with U.S. cooperation, which he would like to have. All right. Now, this is an outright lie. ISIS was not in control of Aleppo. Rebel forces, which were affiliated with the Free Syrian Army or which were independent, were in control of Aleppo. ISIS tried a year before that to establish a foothold in Aleppo, and they were driven out of the city by the rebel forces. The same rebel forces which were in control of the city as Cohen wrote those words. The rebel forces which Assad was attempting to take and ultimately succeeded in taking Aleppo from were the same forces which drove ISIS out of the city. This is a complete reversal of reality. And this is not subjective. This is not a matter of opinion. This is a matter of truth and untruth. ISIS was not among the rebel factions which were in control of Aleppo at that time. I mean, putting aside the fact that you're essentially apologizing for massive war crimes and, you know, the aerial bombardment of a civil population because there happened to be rebels in their midst which is precisely the logic that, 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 that Nixon and Kissinger used in Vietnam, even putting aside the monstrous political logic in defense of this. It's based on a lie. It's based on an absolute untruth. ISIS was not in control of Aleppo at that time. ISIS had been driven out of Aleppo by the same forces that that Assad and Putin were trying to take the city from. It's a reversal of reality. Even more blatant is um, counterpunch. 
founded by former Nation contributor, uh, well, he's deceased now, Alexander Colburn. One of the, um, unfortunately, more popular websites of the American left, which in, um, again, is openly, even more so than the nation, openly pro-Assad. I mean, they will occasionally run the token piece from somebody who's critical of the regime, but ultimately, overwhelmingly, their editorial line is in favor of the regime. And, uh, you know, the most egregious example is that back in um, 2016, they actually ran a piece by Buthena Shaban, who is the official public relations advisor to the genocidal regime of Bashar Assad. So this time, not just, you know, a useful idiot of the Anglo-American quote-unquote progressive talking headset or another paleocon dictator enthusiast of the kind that they uh, usually run, but an actual paid flack of the dictatorship that continues to carry out mass murder and starvation against the Syrian people. And of course, you know, the context of the piece was the same abhorrent jive that we've been hearing for years about how the Syrian revolution was fomented by the West and a jihadist initiative from the very start. And once again, this is a perfect reversal of reality. The Syrian revolution shamefully received no support from the outside world for years, which is what allowed the jihadists to gain a foothold in the first place. After the regime that Shaban speaks for serially massacred peaceful, secular, pro-democratic protesters. But, of course, Shaban, in her piece for Counterpunch, offered not a word about those massacres, but portrayed the emergence of an armed resistance in Syria as an arbitrary and foreign-fomented response to the, quote, conciliatory approach, unquote, of the regime. I am afraid I also have to call out Amy Goodman and Democracy Now! Now, she has been, uh, you know, um, making a bit of of an effort recently to put on more truly progressive voices, and actually put some Syrians, perish the thought, actually put some pr- progressive Syrians on the air. And I'll give credit, but, uh, you know, that she, she's, she's started to do this just in, uh, you know, in, in recent months. But it doesn't atone for the fact that she has over and over and over again, repeatedly put on the air as the voice of authority about Syria, Seymour Hirsch, who, again, is an open, undisguised supporter of the Assad regime. And if you don't believe me, listen to his own words. Back in, uh, again, in 2013, in the, in the aftermath of the, of the Gouda chemical attack, he said, quote, that Bashar Assad is the only solution for stability in Syria. You just have to like it or don't like it. So here we have, you know, the, the most cynical attitude usually associated with paleocons that um that the solution for stability is dictators and authoritarian regimes and keeping down the revolutionary aspirations of the people even to the point of using poisonous gas coming from Seymour Hirsch the same man who came to fame by uncovering the My Lai Massacre in 1968. So, 
To me, this is all of the sad evidence that you need that the so-called, you know, anti-war voices in the West have morphed into their complete opposite and have become vigorously pro-war. We have to put a stop to this. We can no longer maintain our silence and our neutrality. We have to speak out against the incipient Red-Brown Alliance. We have to call for consistent anti-fascist principles and not picking and choosing when we're going to be anti-fascist. And a part of being anti-fascist means opposing the fascist regime of Bashar Assad and supporting the Syrian revolution even now in the darkest hour that it has faced since it began in March of 2011. Be in touch. Tell me what you think. Please. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Please check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon. Join the resistance. Brand on you next time.